Welcome to the Pro Aging Podcast. I'm Steve Gurney, founder of the Positive Aging Community. We're excited that you can join us for our interactive discussions with pioneers and thought leaders on a wide variety of topics related to aging and longevity. Today, we have a conversation with Stephen Petro, who's an award-winning journalist and book author who's best known for his Washington Post and New York Times essays on aging and health. We caught Stephen on his tour for his new book, Stupid Things I Won't Do When I Get Old. So let's jump into the discussion with Stephen Petro. Right? So Jill Berkman from Accordia called me and she said, Steve, I just saw this um, amazing author on the Today Show. And... um, I think you should get him on one of your discussions. And I said to her, I said, wow, Jill, that's great. And um, is there any way that you could see if you could make a connection or reach out and then we'll figure out how we're gonna make this happen. And bless your heart, Jill. I mean, you you attacked that challenge and uh, got Steven together and here we are today. But, uh, But before we dive in, to meeting Stephen and talking about his his book. Tell us about yourself and Moncordia. Sure. Thank you, Steve, so much for partnering with us on this project. Um, I think I actually cornered you at an event <laughs> and, and begged you to do it with me and, and brought Stephen up on, um, on my phone. And um, I was really super excited about Stephen's book. So I'm really happy that we could Uh, bring the speaker to you today. I'm Jill Berkman. I'm the business development manager for Montcordia Home Care and Care Management. For those of you who've worked with us in the last year, you know that Montcordia is not like other home care agencies. What makes us unique? We target a more discerning client that's looking for a different kind of care partner. We hire less than 1% of the applicants that we receive. We train them 1,500% more than the average agency, including Ritz-Carlton's customer service training. Um, All of our care partners drive, cook, care for plants and pets, and they only work for Montcordia. We offer personal care, companion care, and geriatric care management in Montgomery County, and companion care and care management in DC, uh, Loudoun County, and Fairfax County. We aren't for everyone. We do cost a little bit more for this level of service, but the demand has been huge. And because we're so different, we do partner with other care management and home care agencies. So if you have any questions about Moncordia, please contact me. I'll put my information in the chat. And I'm really, really excited to be here and be here with you and Steven. Thank you. This is great. And I I dropped your info in the chat, but definitely you uh, can double up. Um, as you can see, chat's kind of exploding there. But um, okay, uh, well, this is great. So let's let's not waste any more time. Let's bring uh, Stephen Petro to the stage, and uh, he is the author of "Stupid Things I Won't Do When I Grow Old." Um, and uh, Stephen, we're excited to dive into the book. Uh, but before we do that, let's get to know you a little bit better. Tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this book. Well, first of all, let me say how, how glad I am to be with the two of you and with everyone who is, is joining us today. 
I also want to apologize. I'm a little bit nasal. I've been um, having sort of uh, the last part of COVID the last last week. So um, if I sound a little stuffy, I am a little stuffy and uh, and addicted to Sudafed today. Um, and I guess this is one of the great um, great things about being virtual. Nobody's um, nobody's has any chance of becoming uh, infected by um, by a virtual event like this. Uh, I also have to say, just looking at um, the folks who are in the audience. Um, they're just, you're all so well-schooled and, and do the, the hard work in this area. It's just, um, it's, it's wonderful and, um, and it's a little intimidating. So, you know, I'm, I'm a writer and a journalist. I'm not an expert in, in the ways that you all are. Um, and Jill, I wanted to also thank you, especially for tracking me down and um, making the initial outreach. You know, and here we are, and Steve, it's just a pleasure. And uh, and it's good you're Steve, I'm Stephen, nobody at all will get confused. Um, so how did this book come to be? Well, it's probably now about um, 12 or 13 years ago. I was, I was in my early 50s then, I'm 64 now, and... Um, my parents were in their 70s and they had been very active and very engaged people for, for all their lives. And I, I noticed that they started doing some, some peculiar things, some odd things, some things that I thought were not in their best interest. And so I'm, I'm the eldest son, I'm kind of like the know-it-all. And um, so I started writing them down. I started keeping this list of what I was calling to myself, stupid things I won't do when I become like my parents, when I get old. And um, that list started to grow and it was meant to be a secret list. Um, but then I'm a writer and I thought, you know, I think there's something in this for, for more people, a learning, a learning um, lesson. And my own list was a little bit snarky. My mom like kept a very nice house and she hated to bring up and she wouldn't bring up the throw carpets even though my dad started tripping on them and falling. You know, just things like that. She'd been a driver for a long time and. You know, she started almost hitting people and she did start hitting things. And so these were the kind of things that went on the list. And so then I wrote this essay for the New York Times and um, that was in 2017. And that really um, hit a nerve. It went viral, as they say, and it was on the best read, most read list for about two weeks. But what astonished me the most was that then people started sending me the lists that they had been keeping. And so I realized, you know, here I'm doing this thing and I'm a little bit shameful about it, but a lot of people are doing the same thing. And in a way they were doing it in a humorous way as well, but they were also like me trying to set a path how we might choose to do better by observing early on some of the, some of the road, you know, some of the roadmap problems that we could see. And um, so I took a lot of um, you know, what others sent me and then interviewing for this book as well as my own experience. And, and that's how the book came to be. It's in its um, third printing now. I just heard this morning, um, Russian rights have been sold. So it will soon be available in Russia, which uh, amused me um, coming from a Ukrainian background. And um, so, um, so that's kind of the backstory on it. I, I, I love it. And, uh, and, and you know, uh, it's it's almost like you've created this support group where if we all share our list, um, just imagine the resource that that could be to uh, to generations to come. <laughs> to generations, or at least one or two. And you know, I, I've been on book tour, both virtual and in real life. And one of the things that's really pleased me is that I've I've seen um, 
multi-generation groups come in like mother, daughter, um, mother, son, where they've been reading the book together and having a conversation about some of these issues. And that is, um, that is really um, a main point of the book. So I, um, I tried to bring humor to, to many of the topics and you who work in the field, you know that um, sometimes humor can be lacking. You know, there's, these are very serious topics. You know, we're talking about aging, we're talking about illness, sometimes disability, and obviously um, later on death and dying. And um, so by bringing humor, by bringing humor situations from my family's life, I also hope to, to show, you know, there are different ways into these conversations and they don't have to be as, as scary as, as they might seem when you think, you know, well, we're gonna be talking about um, cemetery plots. And one, you know, one, of the, one of the latter stories in the book is um, uh, my parents lived on Long Island and my father, who was a journalist also, he would always go around saying, well, if I die, and then I would correct him being, you know, the whippersnapper, dad, that's the wrong use of the subjunctive, you know, it should be when I die, we're all, we're all going to die. And, um, but anyway, one day you know, we're out in Sag Harbor, we're looking for some plots, and they are both being very resistant, believe it or not, and um, they had canceled many times, and finally we get out there, and my dad's wandering around, and I, I know what he's doing, and he's trying to, you know, stall, and then, but he comes back, and he says, okay, I'm in. I saw the grave marker for Clay Felker over there. And Clay Felker was the founder of New York Magazine, another, um, another journalist like my dad. And he said, okay, this is a good neighborhood. I'm in. And then my mom, who was a psychotherapist, she knew that Clay was married, had been married to Gail Sheehy, and that she had her spot over there. My mom said, I'm in too. Um, so that was kind of how we, we split into you know, a, difficult, you know, a difficult conversation. Well, well, uh, I, I love it, and and I, I want to sort of give people the context of the book. You've got these three parts, but I want to pick up on something that you just said there. And and Jill, I know you'll agree with this: is is that all of these things in sort of this space that we might call elder care, senior living, end of life, whether it be a cemetery plot or moving to a retirement community, I like how you framed it this is an okay neighborhood for me. Because one of the things that I've seen with a lot of the, the individuals that I talk to that might be thinking about or helping their mom and dad make a move to a community, it's sort of like, no, no, that's not for me. I can't go there. That's, you know, old folks home, what have you. But once they get in the door and if they see somebody from their their organization of faith or a previous coworker or a neighbor that's living there, hey, this is an okay neighborhood. They're mm -hmm. like me, you know? So- uh, That actually so just, just happened to me with a, with a friend. His mother refused to get hearing aids. And um, this is a, a big problem because she has dementia and she's isolating now and she can't communicate with anyone on the phone, which has really diminished her quality of life. And, and exacerbated her dementia. And it wasn't until a friend of hers decided she's getting hearing aids and she's going to Costco to get them that now suddenly she's willing to entertain the idea. So that yeah. does happen. That does happen, you know, and it, it, it reminds me, um, I'll, I'll tell two little stories here that are, that are from the book. So um, my parents, like many people always said to myself, I have a brother and a sister, we don't wanna be a burden to you. And then more often than not, they made decisions 
that wound up being burdensome. And the one that comes to mind as, as we're talking is they lived in a very remote part of Long Island. It was hard to get to. Um, it had a, it's like a solitary road to, to get there. It was on a beach. It was subject to you know, wind and, and snow and everything. And um, so we wanted them to, looking, to look at continuing care facilities. And my brother took them to one in Connecticut near where he lived. It was a very nice place. And um, they did the tour and then they went to the dining room and um, there was a fancy fish dish um, on the menu. And my mother had long been, um, she very outspoken about hating fish. And uh, so my brother said, well, how did you like it? And she said, you know, I hate fish. And that was like the end of the conversation. And then they proceeded to quote unquote age in place. And we had a number of emergencies and so on. It was not the easiest decision, but what I took away from that, because I, I have been trying to implement what I see. A couple of years ago, um, I was divorced and I you know I didn't really have a backup plan here. So I looked at some of the continuing care facilities where I live and, um, you know, and it, was, it was a hard decision, but I put my money down and I got on a list. And you know, that is one thing that I don't have to worry about in the same way. And that you know, you know, my siblings and, and nieces don't have to worry about either as much. So um, we, and, and, and actually then four of my friends followed me. So we're gonna have our own little community there. Yeah, I mean, there there is something about that. Is is that it is that's what it's about. It's about community, and it's not um, it's not being segregated from uh, a lot your your lifestyle and life. And uh, and if you and in general, whether it be a hearing aid or a community, if you've got others in your tribe or a tribe that you might identify with it makes it a, a, a lot better. So um, in fact, actually, I mean, one of the most brilliant things I think is the Margaritaville concept of active adult communities, because it's not necessarily a community for older people. It's a community for Jimmy Buffett fans, you, you know, and um, I think we'll see more of that in the future. Well, as I had referenced, I, I love how you set up the book and uh, it's in three parts and it's, uh, the first part is stupid things I won't do today. The second part is stupid things I won't do tomorrow. And the third, which you uh, sort of shared us a little bit of that stupid things I won't do at the end. Mm -hmm. why, why don't we, why don't we just kind of um, use that as our sort of conversation point. And I want to remind the audience too, to jump in if you've got comments or questions, it's best if you use the Q&A feature because we've literally got hundreds of people on this call. The Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen, just type in your questions, comments there and we'll make sure that, that we address them. But, um, but Steve, uh, Stephen, uh, what are the stupid things that you won't do today? What, what are some of the, the things yeah. that you have really um, gleaned from that list? Well, first of all, let me just say I am following the chat here, and, and Barbara, I'm really glad that the um, the column I wrote in the Washington Post about hearing aids was 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 useful to you. And Robin Lerner, I saw you somewhere out there earlier, so hello. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, so it is divided into these into these three sections, and the first part is, is more about what we can do now. Second part is you know a couple of years later, and then you know and then planning ahead, and um, so I'm just gonna, I'll just, I'll read you some of the, 
the chapter titles and then I'll go a little bit deeper. But um, so the first chapter is I won't color my hair, even if it worked for Diane Sawyer. And uh, I'll just tell you a little bit about that. It's probably about 20 years ago, I was co-hosting a benefit with Diane Sawyer. We were joking before we went on and she's about 75 now. So she was 55 then and I was, I guess, about 45. And she told me you know, the secret to, to getting older as an anchor, you don't get gray, you just get blonder. And um, so I was then also working at a startup and I was the third eldest out of about 300. And I had this misadventure in hair coloring which I'm not going to blame on Diane Sawyer because I have to blame it on my hair colorist. But uh, you know, it taught me some important lessons about authenticity and acceptance of, of who you are. So, um, so I have actually stopped doing that. This is this is real. Um, I won't limit friends to my own age, and that's about the importance of um, having multi generational friends, um, both older and and younger, as a way to kind of stay in the swim of conversation, um, have different perspectives. It really, um, you know, it can really help us expand our worlds. And there are more and more studies that show that, um, that it's very good for our health. Uh, one that has um, gotten a lot of attention is I won't double space after periods. Um, <laughs> I still do that. <laughs> I do it too. I, and um, so I grew up, um, my grandmother was the typing teacher and she taught me how to type on, um, you know, an old Smith Corona, bam, 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 double space, double space. And uh, folks with computers, we don't need to double space because the computer makes the space large enough um, for it to be visible, which is the point of the space. Um, but it's definitely a hard habit to change. And, uh, and the rest of the chapter is about integrating technology and finding ways to use technology and not being afraid of technology. Um, but it starts off with, you know, that, that sort of the struggle that we have with, with the double space and, and what that represents. And, you know, the point being, let's try to find ways to retrain our brains um, because that'll help us connect more with people, which is really what we want to do. And, well, yeah, uh, Stephen, you hit a, you hit a nerve on that. <laughs> We've got a bunch of people. They're like, I'm a double spacer too. It's um, yeah, see, Ruth, you're, you're a resistor. I, of course. Yeah. Um, but I can see that would make a great t-shirt. I'm a double spacer. And the yeah. only people that would know what that means are people who were born out before a certain day. You know? And then they'd say, okay, boomer. <laughs> exactly. Okay, boomer. And you know, and, you know, it's so funny because like that chapter, you know, it wasn't, it's, it's one of 43. I think it's gotten the most attention. And it was like, first of all, I didn't realize that. And second of all, I'm not going to change. And then, okay, it's, um, it's been <laughs> interesting. Um, yeah, I also use um, a lot of my sort of what happens in my life um, to talk about issues. And that, that, that's kind of a method I've been using in the columns I write for the Washington Post and the New York Times. And, and so there's one here, I won't, pass up, I won't pass up a chance to pee, even when I don't think I have to. And that comes kind of after um, a near flood on the I-10 near Los Angeles several years ago and um, looking into various devices. And now, you know, it's just easier to go to the bathroom before you go to the theater, to a class, get on a trip, get on a plane. Um, you know, it's, 
it's a good thing. So um, I kind of make fun of myself in that one. So, you know, they're kind of in that vein. They talk a lot about, um, you know, lifestyle issues and, um, um, you know, and how we think about things. And, you know, Steve, one of the things I'm, I'm hoping to do is just help us all become a little bit more aware of the day-to-day decisions we make. And um, so that we can start taking small steps to lead to um, uh, bigger changes. And, um, you know, one of the I guess one of the important points that I'm trying to make in the book is we tend to think about being old as a bad thing. And you folks who work in the field, you know about ageism. You see it, you see it all the time. You see what happens with internalized ageism. It's, um, it's very harmful to, to us who, who take it on. And um, so in a way, by trying to make it more visible, I'm hoping that um, we can also change how we feel about being older. There's a very distinct difference between being older and becoming ill. They get very conflated in our, in our world, in our culture. And, 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 and they're not, they should not not. be. People get ill. I've got an ill high school kid that hasn't been to school in the last two weeks uh, because she's ill. It's not an age specific, um, problem. Neither is disability. There's so many of us, you know, through our lifetime, we break our legs, we need, you know, to, um, to adapt. Um, I love this from Mary uh, Busey. She says, as I understand it, Hollywood has discovered the beauty of silver gray and white hair. I'm jealous. I'm over it. I'm over 80 years old, and it doesn't look like I will ever get it. And, and, you know, that is, a statement like that is what we need more of is is that to be proud of the marks of of being older like can can the gray hair be a badge of honor as opposed to you know feeling like uh i'm 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 less than i used to be yeah i think obviously that's the point i'm making but i will i will note you know steve and i have you know what appears to be gray hair, um, it's, there's, a gen, there's a gender element to this conversation too. And um, I, I think agree. it's us to have, you know, to say what we're saying, um, there are different standards for women. And um, the overall point is about authenticity to how you see yourself. And it's not necessarily about what color your hair is, but it's, it's about understanding who you are and how you relate to the world. Um, Jill, your hair looks fabulous, whether it's natural or not. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that'll be my secret. <laughs> a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I thought it was really interesting. And I think in this section, you talked about some things that are actually like um, a detriment to your health. You know, lying to your doctor, I think, is something that all of us do and none of us really acknowledge that we do. We want to. Mm-hmm seem like we're better than we are. We don't want to get them alarmed. We don't want to know what's wrong with us. Um, yes, that's, um, that's, 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 that's a chapter that's um, really important in terms of life and death even. And um, I'm just seeing what Deborah Dougherty said, you know, start with stating your age and not hiding it. Yes. Um, and it's, it's interesting. Um, in many of the interviews I've been doing, you know, beforehand, the host will say, is it okay if I ask you how old you are? It's in the book, first of all, though I'm just about to be a year older. But you know, I think it is about being comfortable with, you know, with that number. 
and trying to, um, you know, I love what Gloria Steinem has said for, for many decades now. You know, this is the face of 60, this is the face of 70, and this is the face of 80. And I hope she goes on to be, you know, this is, this is the face of 90. But, uh, you know, it, it, it helps to um, change others' percept other perceptions of, of what it means to be you know, a sexagenarian um, or an octogenarian when people start associating active, vibrant people um, with certain, you know, age groups. But going back to, to lying to our doctors, um, yeah, my dad, you know, my dad um, did that a lot with his blood pressure medication and all sorts of things. And I was, um, you know, I was very much of a finger wagger on that. Dad, you've got to be more honest, you know, it's for your own good. And then not long after that, I, um, I was on some antidepressant medication and I decided, well, I was gonna go cold turkey all by myself and not, not engage my doctor. And let me just say, that was a terrible mistake um, in terms of what happened and not sharing it with my doctor and getting, getting some help. And, um, you know, and there are many reasons that people, especially around you know, medications, they, they, um, they kind of go rogue. Sometimes the medications are expensive, they wanna extend them. Oh, you know, antibiotics, you don't really need to finish that course. Yes, you do need to finish that course. Um, and, you know, a doctor can really only be a good partner if they have, you know, the kind of information that, that is there. So um, it's important, and, you know. A lot of people, I think, self-diagnose and, and spend too much time on the internet researching their medications and decide how much is good for them. <laughs> and, you know, the doctor doesn't know. I, I could take half of this. I think I'll be fine. And who needs a doctor when you have the internet, right? Uh, not. not. <laughs> um, uh, Stephen, uh, Deb Merrimer, who I'm assuming she, uh, she's got a copy of your book because she says, uh, you mentioned that we older adults tend to participate in organ recitals. Can you mm -hmm. speak to the, to the downside of such discussions and how to diffuse them? Absolutely. Um, actually, maybe I'll just read that, that first paragraph of that um, chapter. Oh, great. Oh, that's... Uh, let's see where that is. Um, yeah. I never can. Oh, yeah, 48. I won't join the organ recital. Um, It starts out innocently enough. You sympathize with a friend who's had minor surgery or mention your own high blood pressure diagnosis. And a few short years later, every social event becomes a chorus of sticky joints, cataracts, or way worse. It can happen anywhere at any gathering, anytime a few people of a certain age get together. First, the fanfare. What's new with you? Then the overture, the high cholesterol, the prediabetes, and the bum knee. Before you know it, the music swells and it's a full-blown concert of sciatica, angina, and replacement joints. Welcome to the front row of the worst musical review imaginable. You're at an organ recital. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I've never thought of it that way, but that's exactly <laughs> what it is. Uh, yep. And, and my point there is sometimes these conversations can just completely dominate, you know, an evening or an outing. And, um, that's, that's not a good thing. Yes, we all have various, various issues, some of them not serious, some of them more serious. But when you think about um, how we're presenting ourselves and then how we're understanding ourselves, we're not our illnesses. Um, and we need to sort of you know, 
keep those those separate. And you know, and especially if um, other folks and younger folks are listening in, they go, oh, these 50 or these 60 plus people, that's all they talk about. They're just like one condition or another. Well, we're much more than that. And um, you know, we're our travels, we're our work, we're our kids, our grandkids, so on and so forth. So just kind of, you know, my point is be aware of that. Don't let it, don't let our conditions define us. And, um, and again, I'm trying to bring a little bit of humor to this. Um, and I just also want to say, you know, for serious illness, it is important to reach out and talk to people and to get support. And, um, and that's really, that's, that's a different, um, that's a different um, ball of wax than some of the minor things or more minor you know, things. I just glanced down at chat and Steve Lawn says, unfortunately, these conversations happen to those of us in our 40s and 50s, let alone the older generation. I want to remind Steve is, is that remember when 40s and 50s was really old? <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. It, and at whatever age we are at, we don't define it at old. I mean, I you run into people who are in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, and they don't define themselves at old. It's always what's out there in the future. And that's, you know, what, what you're saying in your part two is stupid things I won't do tomorrow. You, you know, like that's sort of in the future. I, I'm, I'm glancing at the table of contents, and I wanted to get your thoughts on the chapter that says, I won't keep driving when I become a threat to others. Because this is something that, that those of us who are in this field deal with on a, a regular basis is hearing the stories of getting the car keys away or the concern that mom or dad is going to hurt somebody. Um, I'm curious about your thoughts on, on that topic. Absolutely. And um, Ellen, Ellen Circus, I see, I see your post there, my post-cancer mantra. I have some problems, but I'm alive to bitch about them. Um, I'm a cancer survivor too. Congratulations to you. Yes, we're alive, and um, and that's a good thing. Yeah. So you know that chapter, the chapter about driving, was the most painful chapter for me to write, and it was it was born of the, one of the most painful experiences in our family's life. Um, uh, I mentioned a little bit at the beginning. My mother, um, my mother loved to drive. She was a very independent woman. When she turned eighty. She bought herself a fire engine red sports car. Um, she was a little old lady with scoliosis, but she had a bright red um, sports car. And she began um, having some difficulties with the car and she said it was the design of the car. So she traded the car in. Okay. Um, but it, it got worse and uh, she hit a couple of cars and then she almost hit a couple of people. My siblings and I, we had various conversations with her and then we, then we actually staged, you know, sort of an informal intervention. We, you know, we were all there until we were all worried for her. And, um, you know, we tried as best we could to be empowering and to also present other solutions. You know, when we were there, um, you know, we could drive her. They had a health aide who lived with them. Um, she could help, you know, Uber, Lyft, so on and so forth. And, um, so we finished and she said, you know, thank you all very much for your concern. F you all. And <laughs> that, that was my mom in a nutshell. Um, and then what we did, we made a secret pact among the three siblings and this was in New York state and we filed a complaint. And, um, and so that triggered 
um, that you have to come in and take um, both the written test and, and the road test, and she failed those. Um, she Lucky for us, just before um, she got called in, she had hit a neighbor's car and she forever thought it was the neighbor who had been the snitch and not any of her children. We kept that a secret. We did tell the neighbor that we really appreciated the fact that he could be our, you know, our straw man on this. Um, but um, that was the only way that we could come to um, a way to protect other people and, and to protect her. But it was, um, you know, it was, it was really challenging and, um, and it was interesting. Uh, she put everything related to that in a Ziploc bag before she died, including the report from the, the road instructor, which was harsh. And I felt like she was, um, you know, she was sending me a message for the future, you know, okay, take your own medicine when it comes to this when the time comes. And um, believe me, I hope that that's one that I will do because it has a lot of serious effect. Yeah, I mean, um, I see some of the comments where people, somebody responded that your DMD was very responsive. I know that this is a, a big challenge for folks. And I know that, um, that, that folks struggle and your story has a much happier ending than, than others. Um, right. the, the other thing that I think this also speaks to, and you addressed it in the beginning, is, is being in a car-dependent environment. Like if you're in Long Island, down a long driveway, out, you know, at this beachfront home that was wonderful when you had easy access to a car, when um, driving is is more of a challenge, it may not your mom may not even want to drive, but she has to drive because of where she lives to get to the things that are purposeful in her life. Um, and this sort of speaks to another reason why looking into a life plan community like like you have might be a, a choice not to be a burden on uh, the people around you. Yeah, but I see. I also see that Joe um, Sperling wrote, "Cars represent freedom," and um, you know, in the conversations that we had with with our mom and with our parents, really, very much aware of that, and very much aware of of, of that to me now, and um, and how much of a challenge that is to um, to restrict that, you know, and you know, sort of a related conversation, um, you know, as my dad was tripping over the throw rugs of my mom's. He was also resisting um, using a cane, using a walker. Um, and I remember having conversations with him about making trade-offs. And, you know, if you do this, if you use the cane, hopefully you will prevent a more serious fall or if you use the walker when it came to that. And um, because the goal was to maintain your independence, to maintain your mobility, to be able to um, stay in contact with people. And that was the conversation that um, we had frequently, um, but that um, did not make enough progress on because in the end, like my grandfather, my father had a serious fall and that precipitated um, his passing in the end. And, uh, you know, I do wonder, you know, how much is genetics, you know, here I've, you know, I've written this book here. I think I'm mindful about these issues and am I just gonna be, you know, another male descendant of the, of the Petrov family. I hope not. <laughs> well, I think I, I, I like this approach. Like I said, you've almost created a support group. It's sort of if, if we all sort of create a list like you did and, and we talk about it and we reflect on it, 
it can hopefully minimize us repeating the 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 things that generate that drove us crazy about the generations in front of us you, you know and and look yeah. at the world through a different perspective and, and, and as i just say that as poignant as that story is about taking the keys away from your mother i have it dog-eared in my book because it's just one of the funniest passages <laughs> that i've read and i think we've all sat down with somebody an older adult who we've you know, tried to intervene and, and meant well and presented all the benefits of what we'd like them to change. And they've looked at us and said, go after yourself. <laughs> so we've yeah. all been there. No, this, this, is, this is great. Now, you've got a chapter, uh, it, it says, I won't be unkind to those with dementia. Um, yeah. Can you give us some insight on that? Because again, this is, Another very hot topic that uh, that we talk about in these discussions is uh, is dementia. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'll tell I'll just tell this story a little bit, and um, I don't remember exactly when this was, but maybe it was fifteen years ago. And so I was visiting my parents on Long Island, and I was standing next to my mom when the phone rang, and it was a call for me. And I heard my friend Holly ask for me. And my mom said, oh, there's nobody by that name here. And I was like, very, mom, what are you talking about? I'm right here. And I was kind of, you know, upset and a little, a little aggressive, like mom. Uh, and that was the beginning of her dementia, but I didn't know and she didn't know. And so, took a long time for me to, um, you know, to realize that I needed to find more of the empathy in my heart and more, more compassion. And the way I actually found it was I had a Jack Russell Terrier who was about 16 and developed dementia. And this poor little dog would stand in the corner and not find its, not be able to find its way out of the corner. And then this mournful howling and that's when I realized I needed to open my heart to the dog, but I really needed to take that lesson and be much more um, you know, open and accommodating with my mom. And later on, there's, um, we have this, uh, this happening where she's, she's going to the bathroom, but she's completely confused and she she's, um, has a you know, severe dementia at this point. And she goes and she goes to the dresser and she pulls the dresser drawer out and she uses that as, 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 as a toilet. And, you know, old Stephen would have been so judgmental and so upset and the mess. And I, I just said, hey, mom, let's go clean you up and, and get you back to bed. And um, she said, that, that's great. She wasn't really aware of what happened, but um, I think that's the kind of kindness that we need, you know, that we need to find that that's hard. Um, because we're losing people that we love, you know. Um, you know, I thought it was, she couldn't remember my name, but it was really about, I'm losing somebody that, that means so much to me. Yeah, no, great reminder. And, and it's, you know, one of the things for the professionals and providers that are in our audience, the virtual dementia tour, which was created um, uh, several years ago, gives you a glimpse of what it might be like to, um, uh, you know, be challenged with dementia, and and after you go through that experience, you you it's also another way to develop the empathy that you 
developed in caring for your mom. And that's, uh, that's very difficult because it's very easy to just get frustrated because you know what she was like. Um, and, um, and it's hard to look at a loved one that's with that behavior. Um, Mary Williams says, uh, she's somebody that read your book. She says, this book is a great resource for talks with our adult kids. Have the conversations with them now so that we can clearly articulate what we want, saying things out loud or even write them down into a contract. Um, great suggestions there, uh, Mary. And I, and I wanna mention to everybody in the audience because I've received two or three uh, comments Everybody's trying to cut and paste some of the great um, thoughts that are being shared in chat. Don't worry, we're going to copy all of chat and it will be right under the recording of this discussion. So you could share that with your loved ones or, you, you know, uh, review it later. Um, Paula, Christy, and Joe, I hear you on, on, on your stories and, and on dementia. Yeah. Yeah. The... Um, so I'm looking at the, 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 the clock. We got about 15 minutes till the top of the hour here. And I want to, um, I, I was glancing at the chapter um, that says, I won't let anyone else write my obituary. Um, I'm, I'm curious, uh, share some of your thoughts on that one. So that, so that, that's from the last, the last part of the book. And, um, and, and basically that, that section of the book is about what I, the, the subjunctive joke I made earlier, you know, it's not if I die, it's, it's, it's when I die. And how can we put things in order as best possible for those who love us and who may be um, burdened with, with some of that. And, you know, and I, and I talk earlier on about, um, it's called Swedish um, death cleaning. Um, is basically Marie Kondo for decluttering, but it, it's a practice that they start in the Scandinavian countries, usually in their 60s, of starting to get rid of the things that you've accumulated so that when you do pass, you don't have a house or two households you know, full of stuff. Um, you know, and then the obituary is, um, uh, I, I interviewed a couple of people who had, um, who had written their obituaries for, for different reasons. Um, one woman um, really wanted, you know, her story as a woman and as a feminist um, to, to be told from her perspective. So she, she's written it and she updates it, it regularly. Uh, I remember someone else said, you know, he was very keen on grammar and he knew that no one else in his family, you know, would, would do him right with, with grammar. So he was going to do it himself. But in, in, I think in a way, in the end, it's another task that you might be able to take off the table from someone. But it's also a way for you to um, leave how you want to be remembered. This is, you know, this is my story by me, so to speak, and um, and 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 that can be an important part of family lore. So, um, you, know, you know, that and you know, I think most of us know, you know, the legal and the medical stuff that that we need to do. And I don't get in, you know, I reinforce all that, but that's that um, that's very well handled by you know by other by other folks. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, honestly, I, 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 why that chapter title resonated with me was is that anytime I go to a service, I'm just, what good, that's the thought that goes through my mind. It's sort of like, 
you know, I, it would be nice if I could write down how I want people to remember me um, and at, at least have it there for somebody to share. Um, the, um, uh, for, uh, really, you know, also, you know, uh, this just reminds me, I had a friend, Steve, who um, was when he turned 50 for his 50th birthday party, he asked everybody to come with a eulogy, a eulogy written about him. <laughs> often, often, not often, almost all the time, you know, eulogies are after the fact. And so he, he put himself out on the dining room table and everyone went around and read their eulogy. But, you know, it was really beautiful. It sounds a little macabre, but it was, it was really wonderful. And, what a great idea. And, and, you know, when you were talked about the, um, the Swedish um, uh, death cleaning, death cleaning, uh, I, I had to double check because the Washington Post, I'm throwing it into the um, uh, into chat. The, the, the Washington Post did a great article on a, uh, a couple that, that held a party uh, in their house to facilitate that, uh, that cleaning. And I, the reason I checked it because I was like, I wonder if he wrote that article. Um, the, um, but the, uh, no, that, that, that's great. Um, okay. Um, well, folks, we got about 10 minutes and I, I, I usually, I, I'm paying attention to the clock here, uh, because normally we get to about three minutes, uh, to go. And then, uh, all of a sudden folks start throwing in these questions at the last minute. So I'm giving you a 10 minute warning. If there's anything that you would like, uh, Stephen to share, uh, thoughts on if you've got a question or comment that you want to make sure that goes beyond just the group chat right there. And I see uh, Ruby Neeson says there's a publication called Five Wishes that helps tell people, helps tell those who you love what you want done as you age and how you want people to remember you. Yeah, the Five Wishes document is great. And that also goes beyond in terms of dealing with advanced medical directives and, um, you know, uh, things like that. So thanks, Ruby, for, for sharing that resource with everybody. You know, and Steve and Jill, that reminds me, um, you know, sometimes people ask me, you know, how have I changed as a, as a, as a course of writing this book? And, um, you know, one, one important way that I've come to see was, I would say 10 years ago, so then I was in my mid-50s, I was very focused we're almost exclusively focused on what I would call um, resume values or virtues. And um, what was my job title? How much money was I making? You know, how many people were, was I managing? It was very, you know, um, externally validated. And, um, and I, I guess as I kind of moved past 60 and into my 60s, I've thought more and more, gosh, I don't want people to remember me by my job title. Uh, <laughs> And, um, you know, and, and things like that and, and, and sort of start to think more about what's called, um, it's, they're called the eulogy virtues, but, you know, the, the characteristics, the qualities that made up someone that makes up someone. And I, th I don't think it's ever too early to think about those and try to try to live a life that is as much focused on that as, um, you know, as providing for, for your loved ones and your, and your family. And that was, that's been like one of the biggest shifts for me. And I think usually that wisdom comes later in life when you realize what's what's been important and what isn't important and unfortunately it's at the end of your life when you realize that and it, it, it is good to realize it a little bit sooner so you can focus on other things you have two good chapters about um 
not being able to control or not worrying about what you can't control right. and um, not being disappointed with your life. Yeah, and um, you know, the, the chapter about not being disappointed, um, very soon before my father passed, he asked me, we were sitting there and he wasn't a deeply introspective person. And then he asked me, well, what's, what matters to you? And I was like, that's not a question my dad usually asks. And, and I thought, well, that's, that's an important question. And I kind, of, I kind of stumbled through it, but I, I was married at the time. I said, my spouse and my family, my health, my siblings, my, my work. And, um, and then I said to my dad, how about you? And he was a very successful, he was a very successful journalist and professor. Um, he had been somewhat you know, estranged from our family and he just sat there and then shrugged his shoulders. And that made me so sad because there were so many reasons for him to um, be able to, do, to understand how he had mattered to us, but he wasn't feeling it. And so mm -hmm. I think it's a great exercise, an important exercise, no matter where you are in this continuum of age to, to think about and sometimes to make course corrections too. Well, no, great. Boy, that, what, what, a, what a great insight and glad that you caught that because these are the types of things that it's easy to miss. You know, it's easy, you're having a conversation and that's, oh, that's just mom or dad. But, but really listening and, and drawing insight that can improve your life is very important. Um, let's see, Elva Roy uh, uh, says, how can I invite Stephen to speak to a future Zoom meeting? for a group I lead in Arlington, Texas. They're called the Ambassadors for Aging Well. Um, Stephen, uh, would you, uh, what's the best way for people to reach out if they'd like to get you to speak to your group? To your I'm happy, group. I'm happy to talk with you about that. Um, I can put my email in here or you can reach out to Steve or Jill and they can forward anything along. Yeah, so, yeah, so Elva, just uh, just shoot us an email and we'll make sure that we get Stephen's contact. And that goes for anybody in the audience that would like to connect with. Uh, with yeah, I, I mean, I, I, you know, the, the chat, it's, it's going by so fast. I, I'm, I'm glad we're going to get it at the end, too, because um, there's, there's amazing stuff in there. And I wish I could respond to everybody right now. Yep. And uh, let's see. Bob Hoffman says, does Stephen know anything about the use of video for end of life? issues, planning, and decision-making, um, meaning sort of recording video, the way that, you know, talking about, I won't die without writing letters. I mean, as, as, as we double spacers know, writing letters is not the only way to communicate now. There's, there's video and things like that. Have you, have you encountered anything on using video for end-of-life messages? Absolutely. There are, there are a number of services out there. You can pre-record them all, and then when your next of kin notifies the service that you've passed, they will hit send. That's one of them. I find that a little creepy, like all of a sudden it's gonna be there without any warning, but. I think no. they have holograms now. Where oh yeah, there's all kinds of <laughs> That's stuff. That's creepy. <laughs> yeah. What is that? A hologram. Oh, is that oh, yeah. hologram. oh yeah, oh gosh. Yep. Um, let's see. Oh, this is great. Sharon Rose says, uh, Steve, what is, Stephen, what is your next book? Research, Joys of Aging Well. Uh, do you have anything that you're working on? I, um, I am working on something new and um, it's, it's, it has not been born yet as something that I can um, sort of talk about um, eloquently, 
but uh, expect to see something new from me in, um, soon. Great. Um, the, and I just want to uh, mention Stephen's um, articles, which I have read over the years, didn't realize, I didn't make the connection till after I had gotten the book, um, but his articles are online too, and they're in Washington Post and New York Times and a bunch of other publications. Really entertaining. Thank you, Jill. Yes. Oh yeah, no, I, 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 we were saying before this just started, I know when I've got a really good discussion that's gonna be really popular because there's only been two that my parents have brought up. And, and one, my mom, I had Matt Paxton of Hoarders and she's like, oh, I can't believe that you have Matt Paxton. And my dad said, I really wanna tune in to Steven Petra. I wanna hear what he has to say. So uh, um, yeah, you are, uh, you've got a, a great fan club out there and, and uh, you've got a great way of, of really taking some challenging topics and um, making them a lot more digestible. Um, Steve, I wanted to call out, Steve, I want to just call out your newsletter um, because I heard from a number of people who received that this week um, who follow it and um, speak highly of you. So um, Mutual Admiration Society, it's not just about our names. Well, well a lot of you know, a lot of Steve in the conversation today too. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, but, but really in sort of closing because we are wrapping up to the top of the hour, just a reminder of how powerful we are as a community on any given topic. You know, this is, and, and I loved, I just love doing these things because you just see that in the audience, we've got just such great comments and resources and ideas and, um, and coming together on this topic. I think if there's one thing that I sort of love about your book and, and using this as a discussion point is using this as an encouragement to, to, for everybody to make the list of those stupid things that you want, that you're not gonna do when you're old, but don't wait. Like old is right now. Like let's make it happen right now. And, uh, and sharing, sharing our lists and our ideas with each other. Well, so, it's, um, it's, you know, it's half about, I always thought, I'm just going to keep making my list. I'm never going to have to do anything with this list. It's like with stocks. You need to know when to buy. You need to know when to sell. So you need to make your list and then you need to start implementing your list. That's, yep. that's hard. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And if you figure out the stock thing, definitely write a book on that so that we can all figure that one out. Um, <laughs> Well, this, this has been an awesome discussion. Jill, do you, would you like to, um, do you have any sort of closing thoughts? And then uh, Stephen, and then we'll get this recording up as soon as possible. I just thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Um, it, it, I'm just such a fan of the book. Like I said, if, if you get the chance, read the book. It is lighthearted and, and also really educational and will make you stop and think about some of the things that you could do to, to um, acknowledge you know, where you're headed in life and, and some habits that you might want to break and some habits that you might want to adapt. And um, you're, it's for all ages, really. So I thank you so much for, for being here. And, and I thank everyone for attending. Thank you. Yeah, and Jill, thanks to Moncordia, your organization for supporting this. I, uh, I, we were happy to do it. And thank you for partnering with us. I think it worked out great. Yeah. All right, Steve. And any thank you, any and thank last you words? You. 
thank you to the both of you. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you to everybody who's, who's participated. This is an amazing community and um, I'm honored to be here. Thank you. All right, great. Thank all you. right, see you all soon.